So I want to speak to you tonight about the value and the pursuit of self-discipline. Uh, this is an attitude, you could say. It's also an action, but I, I feel like it's right for us to talk about it as an attitude. Self-discipline is first an attitude of the mind and of the heart before it becomes an attitude in practice. But I want to talk to you about the value and the pursuit. We're going to seek to answer two basic questions about self-control. Question number one, why do you want it? Why do you want it? And question number two, how do you get it? So, so first, first question, why do I want self-control? Why do I really, really, really want to seek self-control this evening, this week, this year? Why do I want it? Um, we're going to just uh, frame several of our points here with this idea of uh, Life without self-control is blank. So you can kind of fill that in. I have a few points here about what life without self-control looks like. This is once again under the first question, why do you want it? Well, let's just look at what life is without self-control. Without self-control, number one, you'll be without home security. Without self-control, you are without security. Without home security. What am I talking about? Well, let me uh, explain this uh, illustratively with a personal story uh, that's embarrassing. Um, a few weeks back, my family and I, we just decided to take this quick overnight. Sometimes, you know, you just like to get away for a night. It's really fun. Uh, just, just, just kind of change things up, you know, just go sleep somewhere else, you know, just do something. Um, we, we packed up the van Friday night. We loaded up everything. We loaded up the kids, which, if you know my kids, is quite the experience. And we pulled out of the driveway. And as we're backing down the driveway, I, I hit the garage door and the garage goes down just like it does. Okay, good. The garage is shutting. The battery in the remote works just fine. So I peel out of the street and just go and take off and we have a wonderful night together and, and, and so on. And then we return the next day to find, as we drive down the street, um, that the garage door is open. It's like, I'm sure I hit the button on that garage door. Well, what I didn't see while I was hitting the garage door button was a small PVC pipe sticking out of the garage. My, my kids were like playing around near the garage and this pipe just fell down. And if you know anything about garage doors, they've got this like built-in mechanism. If they run into any resistance, they go back up, right? That's to protect young kids' heads and things like that, I guess. <laughs> so my garage door had been opened all night. We're talking like 5 p.m. to 12.30 in the afternoon the next day. And not only that, the door inside my garage going into my house was unlocked. And not only that, the key to my truck, which was parked overnight in my driveway, was right inside the door on a hook. <laughs> So think about this. Well, first off, Serena made me go inside and check every single like closet. <laughs> the murderer's always in the bathtubs too, so I had to check all the bathtubs. You know, you know, and nobody was there, and nothing was gone. Nothing happened. But literally, somebody could have gone into my house, taken all of my stuff, which I know everybody wants my books, 
<laughs> and literally put it all in my truck and drove away. I would have had, I could have like been completely robbed. It would have been like the Grinch all over again. <laughs> Thankfully, that didn't happen, but that is basically how the Bible describes a life without self-discipline or a life without self-control. It is like a house with a door wide open. It's like a house with a garage door just beckoning all neighbors come feast on the spoils of this house. You're in Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs 25 verse 28. Notice how the Word of God describes the life without self-control. It says this, a man, and you can apply this to a woman as well, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That is the life of someone without self-control. They are like a city without walls. Now, you're looking at me, and you're like, Bakersfield doesn't have any walls. I don't think I need walls in my life right now, right? Uh, well, in the ancient world, walls were critical for security and for safety, right? You'd have walled cities all over the place. And if a, an invading army ever came into your country, everybody in the city, but especially the, the people that lived outside of the city in the countryside, they would gather everything of value that they had and they would move into the city with walls and then they would close the gate and everybody would be safe. But a city without walls was victim to any raiding army. Uh, they could come and take all of your things. And they could even come and take you as well and enslave you. A city without walls is a city that's vulnerable at any time. It has zero self-security, and you will likely, likely become the slave of someone or lose everything that you own if you live in a city without walls. You'll be the slave of every and any taskmaster the world, the flesh, and the devil can send your way. And believe it, they will come your way like bees to honey. And like bees to flowers, more significantly, they will bring all of their friends to also help you uh, relieve yourself of some of your things, right? That's That's what... That's what a city without walls is like. What is a, what is a person without spiritual walls, without self-control in their life? You, you'll easily become the slave of every single anxious thought. You'll quickly become the slave of every single enticing desire or lustful fantasy or inkling or urge or lazy excuse that your mind can concoct. You will be the slave of everything and anything in life if you are without self-control. You are like a city without walls, and your ruin will be great. And not only that, you'll become the slave of everybody else's desires, everybody else's greeds, everybody else's fears. Everybody will rule over you, and everybody's fear will rule over you, and your ruin will be very great indeed. That is the life without self-control. It's a life without security. Proverbs 5, 
um, shows a picture of a fool. You're familiar with it. It's a, it's a foolish man who is falling for the trap of the adulterous woman in Proverbs 7 tells us a similar tale. He, he is described like uh, an ox going to the slaughter. He is described like a, a bird rushing into the snare in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 7. But these Proverbs don't just show you the end result. They show you how this man got there. Right? This isn't the, this isn't just him walking down the street, no history before this, and just running into this adulteress. There, there is a story behind how this young man got here. And, and notice what he says in his own words. This is how I became this. This is how I became the city without walls. And now I'm an, an ox going to the slaughter. Now I'm a, a bird going into a snare. Why? Why? It's because of how I grew up. It's because of the decisions I made as a young man. Proverbs 5.11 says this. All right, let's jump over to 10. He's warning him not to do this, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, city without walls. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed, a city without walls, a life without walls. And you say, verse 12, you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. Notice that. The life of destruction comes from the youth who never seeks self-discipline. His life is, is, is a wide open house to anybody that wants to come in and take his strength, take everything from him. You can say it this way, your, your youth and your pursuits or lack thereof will have astronomical repercussions on your old days. Your, your old days will reflect what you chose to seek in your young days. Your, your choices today will cause your last days to either be days of groaning and grief or days of freedom and joy. All how you choose to respond to instruction. Uh, Ryle, J.C. Ryle says this, You will probably become what you already are. It's a very weird statement, but notice what he's saying there, right? If you are someone that lacks self-discipline, you will become an, a more wretched and horrific version of that in your older days. You will probably become what you already are. And why, why, why are we in such a danger of this, of making foolish choices, of having lack of self-control? First Peter 2.11, of course, tells us, it tells us that we have these passions that are waging war within us. We dare not. We dare not leave our life without security. So will you have security in your life? Will your life be a life of security? Or will you be a slave to everything and anything? That is the life without self-control. Let's look at another point. Without self-control, secondly, you'll lose your persuasiveness for the gospel. Without self-control, you'll lose your persuasiveness 
for the gospel. Or you could say this point this way, you'll be unavailable for evangelism. You'll be ineffective in your witness. If you lose self-control, you'll lose your persuasiveness. What, is, what am I talking about? Well, let's see the church, and what I refer to by the church, I mean believers, believers here in the world, have been left here for many different purposes and reasons. But the main purpose we've been left here on the earth is not primarily for fellowship or uh, for worship or for great preaching. Those are the things we are called to, listen to those things or participate in those things. But let's be honest, uh, those things are going to be much better in heaven, right? We're not left here to meet together and praise God. We're, we're here to be a witness to the watching world, to be a witness to the watching world. Matthew 5 says that uh, Jesus says this to his disciples, you are going to be salt and you are going to be light. You're going to be light that, that pierces through the darkness of this world and its lies with the truth of me and my gospel. That's what you're called to be. You're called to spread light of truth. And you're also called to be salt. Uh, salt is kind of like a preservative. It, it keeps the world from completely just spiraling out of control. That's what the Christian is called to be. They're called to be sources of truth to the world, but we also have this preserving effect. The world is not as evil. It's God's grace to the world that the church remains here. That is who we're called to be in the world. We're called to be light, and we're called to be salt. And You could even look over, turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, of course, is, is, is about living a life in a, in a hostile world. We talked about this last year a lot, so you're, you're familiar with it. But just to repeat some themes, in 1 Peter, holiness is essential. Remember we talked about this in chapter 1. You shall be holy, the Lord says, because he is holy. If we want to live in this world that's honoring to Christ, we need holiness. And why does people, Peter say this? He says, holiness aids your persuasiveness in preaching the gospel. Of course, in two, chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, and you can be sure that they will, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God in the day of visitation. We talked about this last year, how, how believers will see your good deeds and then they will consider the message that you bring. They will listen more closely to the very message that you speak. And then, of course, the language there, glorify God on the day of visitation. That's salvation language. That's people praising God because they have been saved because you were salt and light in the world, right? Now, now the, the point there, you will lose your uh, persuasiveness. I, I choose that word intentionally. I didn't say if you don't live a holy life, you'll lose the gospel message. Uh, basically, we, we need to remember that our message is not just a message of moral reform. Our message is not just our behavior. Our message actually requires our words, us, us to speak words. Matter of fact, to faithfully proclaim the gospel does not require any lifestyle at all. You need to faithfully proclaim the gospel in its clarity, in all of its hard points and its difficult points. That is what 
being faithful to the gospel message is. It's not results, and it's not your lifestyle. It's not lifestyle evangelism. Preaching the gospel is explaining the truth of God and the truth of man and why Christ came to die. But your message will lose its persuasiveness if there's been no transformation in you. You talk to your friends about the gospel, about how, it, how, about, how, about how you can be right with God, and that's transformational in your life. But more importantly, just, I, I was made to worship and praise God. And then you live just as ignorant and as foolish a life as they do. Why should they listen to you? Why should they listen to you? You'll lose your persuasiveness in the gospel. You won't lose the gospel necessarily, but you could lose your persuasiveness. Let's, let's move to another, another point. Without self-control, you'll undo the work of discipleship. Without self-control, you'll undo the work of discipleship. Say it this way. The believer without self-control is the great danger inside the church. I mean, you could say it this way. Pagans and unbelievers and revilers of the gospel can actually formulate the words of the gospel. We talked about this on Sunday, where it almost seems like the thief on the cross is won by the testimony of the people that are reviling Jesus on the cross, right? You can hate Jesus and still explain the true gospel. But uncontrolled Christians can't help their fellow Christians follow Christ better. Actually, they probably do more damage than good. A Christian who doesn't have self-control in their life undoes discipleship. And, And we get this idea kind of from the letter of Titus. I don't want to jump into Titus too much for sneaky reasons that I have planned in the future. But just a little observation about the letter to Titus from Paul. Titus was written to a young church and a young pastor, probably, on an island of pagan culture, both literally and, and actually spiritually. They were just surrounded by a pagan culture, and over and over and over again in the letter, Paul exhorts Titus to be training people and reminding them to self-control. Well, why does he do that? For sure, it has to do with their witness in the, in the world, to their witness to the watching world, right? They're in a pagan culture and they want to stand out as brightly as they can for Jesus Christ. But he also, throughout Titus, you see this again and again, he links it to discipleship relationships. Older women are to teach younger women to be self-controlled. Older men are to have self-control. Younger men are to have self-control so that the word of God is not reviled. But also so that you can actually do spiritual good for other people in your life. You'll never be able to bring true spiritual benefit to anyone without self-control yourself. You will undo the work of discipleship. I want to show you a picture. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul, of course, here is writing to the immature church in Corinth, and he is answering their questions, and he's also bringing up some things that they didn't know he knew about and just um, addressing many issues in the church of their immaturity. 
and they ask him this question about, hey, so if, if meat offered to idols really isn't that bad, we can eat it, right? Even if uh, my brother is offended by it, I still have freedom in Christ, I can eat it. And of course, Paul says, no, you should, you should never try to intentionally destroy or weaken or damage the faith of your brother. And then of course, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul begins to say how he has all of these rights that he could possess in the Christian life, and he does not do them. He does not pursue them. And of course, then you see this famous passage in, in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in 19, where he, tech, he talks about being all things to all people. And, and just so we're clear, this isn't saying, Paul is basically saying, hey, I can do whatever I want. We, and in the Christian life, we can do whatever we want because we're, we're all things to all people. We conform to the culture and try to, uh, try to embrace all of their norms so that they understand us and that they accept us and we, we look like them so they feel at home in our, in our fellowship. That's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is not compromising on convictions, but he is putting personal limits on his own liberties so that he can reach more and more people. He's saying no to things so he can reach more people. He is practicing self-control. And this is kind of the lesson. The lesson that Paul says is, hey, if you want to love others in the Christian life, you must have self-control. Because sometimes, maybe a weaker brother you have to practice self-control for them so that they're, they're not a cause to stumble. But notice how he describes it. He describes it in a, in, with a picture of an athlete training for what were their kind of like Olympic games. He says this in, in chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So you should run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should uh, myself be disqualified. Just here under the, the idea of if you love others, and if you love a gospel witness, uh, that will be a life that demands self-control. Notice what Paul says here. If you want to be able to reach more and more people, your life actually has to have more discipline, more self-control. If you want to be a help to the church, if you want to encourage people in the gospel, your life needs to be more disciplined. He he says there, even in verse 27, I discipline my body. Very strong, intense language. Paul is saying, I give my body many blows. A word that could also use, uh, be used to say, I give myself a black eye. Now, he's not actually physically hitting himself in the face, but he's, he's showing you something. He's showing you that he is not a slave to his body, his body is a slave to him and to Christ's purposes in his life. He is saying, I will withgo anything if it means I can reach more people. Matter of fact, notice what he says. He says, and keep it under control. That's a word that says enslave. I enslave my body. Now, now notice this. Instead of listening to his body and saying, what do you want to do today? Okay, we'll do that. 
instead of listening to his friends, hey, what do you guys want to do today? Okay, we'll do that. He is talking to himself, and he is saying, no, we're going to go here. We're going to do this. We're, going to, we're not going to think about that. We are going to be disciplined. Why? Because I want to reach more people for Jesus. He says this in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Listen, if, if, if it's worthwhile to you to spend years and years of your life putting discipline into some sort of event that you're going to receive a perishable crown for, there's, there's noble purposes in that. How much more valuable is it to pursue spiritual self-control and discipline? This is something that's going to last for eternity, right? And that's Paul's argument. If athletes here at the Isthmian Games practice and train for this long just to compete, how much more should we have self-discipline in our life? You'll undo the work of discipleship. Let's look at one more. Without self-control, you'll miss out on assurance. Without self-control, you'll have less assurance of salvation in your life. Turn back over to 1 Peter. The life of self-control has the most joy in Christ, has the things of Christ, and has joy also in the return of Christ. The life of self-control is a life of freedom, actually, and not slavery like we would think. And, and the, the Word of God is very serious about self-control in the life of believers. It uses a lot of different language to speak about self-control. The, a definition of self-control is just basically, as you could have guessed, it's a mastery of yourself. It's, a, it's an exercise of personal restraint in many ways. And, and there's lots of different words. Some of the words speak of being in control. Some of the words speak of about having, having lordship over yourself. Some of the words speak about um, restraining desires, emotions, or impulses. That's what we're called to do. Some words um, are sober-mindedness, and you see that in 1 Peter 1.13, right? You have this soberness. You're, you're not drunk in this life. You are not given to excess or recklessness or confusion. You are not ruled. We could apply that. You're not ruled by emotions in your life, but you are ruled by the truth in your life. But my favorite word, my favorite word for self-discipline is right here in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, because the middle schooler in me just loves it, right? 1 Peter 1, 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of that, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you're saying to me, David, I don't see any funny word in there. And that's because ESV has kind of smoothed it out for you a little bit, made it a little bit less awkward. Um, but really, that word preparing your minds for action, it's a, it's a good translation of the phrase. But I always think of the old King James Version, therefore girding up the loins of your mind, which is just an interesting a picture, don't you think? Girding up the loins of your mind. What in the world are we even talking about? That's probably why they said preparing your minds for action <laughs> makes a little bit more sense. <clears throat> Basically, what they're talking about is that Peter is referring to this picture of a soldier or a worker in the field, right? 
before you got busy working in a field or before you went into battle, you would use your belts or whatever you could find to strap your garments as close to you as you can so there are no parts of your wardrobe flapping around in the breeze. Because there's nothing worse for a soldier than having his skirt flapping up in his face while he's trying to take out an enemy soldier, right? There's nothing that will more screw up what you're trying to do right there than losing total vision. Or if you are, I'm sorry, uh, if you are trying to, you know, try to escape from somewhere and you get caught up in like dead bodies around you, there's nothing worse than that, right? You don't want parts of your wardrobe flapping around in the breeze you want to be have it, you want to have it tightened up you want to have your what they referred to as your loins girded tightened like that so you could be a man of action be ready to go and that's what peter is saying here except he is not referring to your garments he is referring to your mind he's saying you need to have your mind tightened up so there's no loose ends flapping around in this hostile world. Because this hostile world is going to tangle up people who have loose thinking, who are not self-disciplined in their, in their thoughts and in their attitudes and in their actions and in their emotions. This world's going to tangle you right up. So you need to prepare your mind for action. You need to be ready to go. Now, what does this have to do with assurance? Well, notice the main verb here in this verse is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These two phrases, preparing your mind for action and being sober, are actually instrumental, instrumental phrases. They kind of describe how you set your mind or set your hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's by doing these things that you best set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's essentially he's saying this, hey, people without self-control in their life will struggle with sin, yes, but they will also struggle with hope and they will also struggle with the joy of assurance and the love of Christ's coming. People with their minds flapping around in the wind don't look forward to Jesus' coming and don't have eager assurance of themselves when he comes. That's what you lose out when you don't have self-control. You, you lose and miss out on assurance. So essentially what you want is you want self-control. That's what I want. I want self-control. But how do I get it? How do I gain it? This is our second question. We'll try to jump through really quick. Now, it's interesting to me. I, I've been reading about self-control all week. And in the Bible, for the life of me, I can't find any real how-to manual. It's really unhelpful, actually. I keep reading these verses that say, be self-controlled. Thanks. It's almost like, now I know I might be reading into some of your lives here and just assuming things. It's almost like all of you already know where you are lacking in self-control and even hearing be self-controlled. Oh, I know exactly what that means. I know exactly where I need to remove the weaknesses in my life. I know where my life is flapping around in the breeze. I know where my mind is loose 
and not tightened by God's truth. But I'm going to give you just maybe a little helpful game plan here to maybe put some meat on the bones for your small group discussion. Maybe I would like it if you guys in small group really talked about these things. Hey, where do I lack self-control and how can I put off laziness and how can I put on self-discipline? That's what I would like for you. So I'm just going to give you a few, just a few thoughts that I'm kind of came to me as I was studying. Um, number one, how to get it and how to grow in it, you could say. How to, number one, admit that you first lack it to some degree or another. Admit that you do not have the kind of self-control that you want in your life. Maybe tonight you don't have self-control because you haven't fully come to terms with how sloppy and how lazy your life is. Maybe even tonight you're like, wow, I, I think I'm actually very lazy and I've never actually had to admit it. The first step is, is realizing how lazy you can be. The, the first step to self-control is seeing who you are by yourself. I was, I was listening to this Q&A. It was very interesting to me because Sinclair Ferguson, this, this old Scottish man, was saying, he's not old, but he's, he's a Scottish man, so he sounds cool. Uh, <laughs> he, he was saying, essentially, I, I must pursue self-discipline in my life because I know how lazy I tend to be. Do you know how lazy you are? Are you bothered by your laziness? Are you bothered by your foolishness? That's actually the first step to pursuing self-control, being truly bothered by it. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says this, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Own that verse tonight. Folly is tied up, bound up, uh, intricately woven into my life. I am born foolish, stubborn, and lazy. Then only the rod of discipline will drive it far from me. Does your looseness and does your foolishness trouble you tonight? That is the beginning. Another step you could say is, number two, treasure wisdom highly. Treasure it highly. Discipline comes to the heart that reaches outside of itself and seeks God's wisdom. Discipline comes into the life of someone that wants wisdom and discipline, but mainly even wisdom. Matter of fact, we see this in, in Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a great book, and that's why we're continually going back and forth. Notice just, just how the father addresses his son in Proverbs 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, and the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments, and live. Verse 5, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Notice that, it begins in the desires. It begins first off in saying, I don't have it, and then I want it. I really do truly want it. And then going to God and seeking His wisdom and seeking to imprint His wisdom that He has revealed into your mind and into your heart. Because when His wisdom, when His discipline is imprinted in your heart 
it becomes your own and it results in self-control in your life as well. Treasure wisdom highly, number two. Number three, confess truth. Confess truth. If you're still in 1 Corinthians and you want to hang out there a little bit more, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. You need to confess several truths about yourself that are true of you if you are in Christ Jesus tonight. Number one, you are not your own. Paul says this in in 6, 19. He says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And notice also he says, your body isn't just not your own, it's a sacred space of my worship. It's purposed for that. You have received the gospel so that you can seek self-control to glorify God in all things. You are not your own. That's what you should remember. But another thing, you need to confess with glorious joy. Not just that you are not your own, but also you, yes, you, student, have been given the power of self-control in your heart and in your life. Watch this. Self-control that I am outlining for you tonight is not just, hey, do better. Self-control you can pursue because the Spirit of God has come and made His residence in your heart and in your life. That's the only hope you have for self-control. Galatians, notice what it says. Galatians says this in 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. There is this war. And after outlining the the acts of the flesh, that's you, he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then look at that, self-control. Self-control does not come from you just trying really hard. It comes from the Spirit of God powerfully at work in your heart, applying the truth of God's Word and giving you grace and strength to follow through. The Spirit of God makes that happen. It's not perfection, of course. It's direction. It's affection. That's what it is. It's it's a growth. It's a continual daily growth in self-control because the Spirit of God is at work in you. And number four, another suggestion, um, examine your whole life. Remember, self-control is your calling for peace, for affection, for, for joy, for effectiveness in this world. You should examine your life carefully for lack of discipline in your life because you want those things, right? I want more peace in my life. I want more joy in my life. I want more effectiveness in my life. The gospel is sweet. It's too sweet a gospel to live a life without self-discipline. So you should examine your whole life. You should examine your day. Ask yourself, when am I most lazy? When, am, when do I lack self-control the most? Is it in the morning? Is it at, in the evening? Is it in the afternoon? 
Ask yourself, what maybe could I put on? What disciplines, what bedrock disciplines in my life could I put in place in those very moments of laziness? What about in your emotions? What about in your emotions? When and where are you most out of control in your life? When you're most consumed by some sort of emotional pull? What, what is the truth that you need to put into your life in those times? That you are not your own, that you've been given the Spirit of God to empower you for self-control, and that, yes, you may need to put off things, but also look at what you have in Christ Jesus. Have you sought His grace and strength to help you stand in those moments? Uh, Is this undisciplined emotional run in your life the result of maybe an undisciplined lifestyle? Maybe you need to set a bedtime. Maybe you need to set an alarm clock to put some foundations in your life of discipline. You should examine your day. You should examine your emotions. You should examine your lusts. Uh, Get radical with lusts in your life, right? Get radical with them. Remove areas of temptation from your life by the power of the Spirit Seek God's truth, seek fellowship with Christ Jesus, and seek a heart that loves Jesus more because you have the Spirit of God. Expose light into your life. Expose other people into your life because you've been given the Spirit. Or how about this? Not just examine your lusts or your emotions or your days. Examine your can'ts. Examine all those things in your life that you say, I just can't live without that. I can't live without this thing in my pocket that vibrates every once in a while. You should test everything in your life, every, everything in your life with fasting. Can I live without it for a while? If I can't, I need to live without it for a while. Examine your whole life. This is what we've been talking about, how to, how to get it and gain in it. You need to admit that you don't have it. You need to treasure God's. Uh, discipline, you need to confess truth, you need to examine your whole life, but I don't want to leave you just on that. I want to leave you on one more point. Remember the gospel. I would say this is very important to self-discipline. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen tomorrow? You're going to wake up, and you're going to mess up, and you're going to give up, right? That's how it goes. That's why you need to constantly be reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel through it all. What is the truth of the gospel? The truth of the gospel is this. You are not saved because you are so self-disciplined. The truth of the gospel is you have been saved because you lack self-discipline. You have been saved while you were living in the passions of your former ignorance. That is the you that was saved by Christ Jesus. You are not saved because of how disciplined you are. You have been saved for self-discipline in your life. And you need to remember this as well. Christ died for every area of waste in your life. And in exchange of that, he credits, gives to you every moment of discipline that he ever lived. So when God looks at you, he sees Christ's full and perfect life and your wasteful life is crucified on the cross. And he gave you, he gave you this gift of exchange. Why? So that you could receive the promise of the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of self-control 
in your life. That is the gospel message. And another encouraging thought from a book I read just this week. Christ also died for you, fully knowing you and every way in which you would disappoint. Packer, in, in, in the book Knowing God, says this about the knowledge of God. This is tremendous relief in knowing that his love for me is utterly realistic. I love that word. It's utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. When Christ Jesus died for his own, he died for his own in full knowledge of who they were. And he died for them in order to save them, even at their worst points. And he died for them in order to empower them through the promise of the Holy Spirit to change, to permanent change. This is the glory, the good news of the gospel that we celebrate. And that is the good news of the gospel that we preach to ourselves every single day. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for this time that we've been given. And we pray that we would be people that are better, that are constantly striving to grow out of a a desire to glorify you, to be effective, to be safe and secure, and to bring you praise, the praise that you deserve. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.